Beers and Banter, episode 53. We have Gold Coast icon, Order of Australia recipient, local legend, Arthur Coughlin in the house tonight. Let's rip in. As always, we're really appreciative of the support from the guys at Gripstar Socks. Gripstar Anti-Slip Socks feature panels that create traction that improves speed, acceleration and stability. Gripstar Socks are designed to deliver maximum comfort and flexibility, featuring a breathable mesh design that removes sweat and reduces odours. Perfect for high movement sports, working on your feet or lounging safely at home. Seriously grippy. Arthur, welcome to Beers and Banter. Uh, glad to be here and thanks for having me. Like I said, Gold Coast icon, this this is probably an episode for those that have been on the coast for a fair while, they'll, they'll recognise your name in, in all different circles, so uh, thank you for coming in, taking the time out to come and have a chat to us. Not a problem. Uh, what is customary at Beers and Banter is that we kick off with a beer, so every time I've ever been to your house, it, you've always offered me a Powers Gold, so <laughs> I got some Powers Gold, but also bought a couple of backup Guinness, which, which one would you prefer? <laughs> Both. <laughs> no, no, I can do that. Settle for the Guinness, mate. Start with the Guinness? <laughs> yeah, Guinness, yeah. <laughs> so, do, you, do you want to pour it or I'll let you no, – I'll, I'll botch that if you – I'll have it later, mate. You sure? <laughs> yeah, because right. it appears all over the place. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I, I uh, wasn't that long ago. I upended a beer straight into my mixing uh, mixing equipment here. It wasn't great. I'm going to crack a Powers. Okay. <laughs> crack whatever you want. <laughs> I was actually surprised it was still at the bottle when I went there today. <laughs> it's on the it's on the front of Alfie's shirt there. Ah, oh, okay. Right. So, like I said, Gold Coast legend, but you you you're not from here. You're not really local, are you? Well, I am now. <laughs> I, like, I like to think I've been here since. Uh, but 1953, I think. When you're, I... you're more local than most people I know. But yes, you, you were born in the mother country, uh, Liverpool, born in Liverpool, England. Yep. Yeah. Does that make you a Liverpoolian? Is that exactly? Yeah. Or popularly known as a scouse. They call them a, a scouse. scouse. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, did you play a bit of soccer over there? I did. As a kid, I played soccer. I played my school team, and yeah. The game I really enjoyed. Yeah. Do you still do you follow it much? They were champions there not that long ago. Back in the, the COVID, re- nearly wrecked their run to the to the title. Yeah, I haven't followed it uh, lately. I've got to be honest. Uh, I, I just watched it today on the Olympic uh, Games. Some of the soccer, yeah, very good. Yeah. Aussies going all right. How did they end up against Spain? I can't remember how they went against Spain last night, but the. They've had a couple of they had a win early on the Aussies the Ollie Rule Ollie Rule. <laughs> I'll be honest, I forgot. There's so many sports there. There's swimming. There's all sorts. Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. A couple of gold medals there today, anyway, for the yeah. Aussies. Yeah, swimming. Yeah. So, born in Liverpool, how do you end up on the Gold Coast? Well, Dad wanted to bring us to Australia because I won't go into too much. But as a kid, we were brought up in World War Two, which was absolutely horrific. You know, we saw a lot of people killed, and it was just a dreadful seen uh, and dad wanted to get us out of the place mm-hmm. and of course everybody wanted to come to Australia so it was a nightmare to try and get out and we finished up there and it was a paid passage a lot of them of course were the, what they call them uh, two bob poms whatever but they came yeah. out a couple of quid 
But uh, Dad had to finish up paying for our passage, the whole lot. We actually came out first class. It was quite good because in those days, the ships were first and second class. Today, they're generally just one class. In those days, they were first and second class. And the only passage Dad could get was first class, which suited us down to the ground. So, yeah, we came out first class, six weeks, uh, six-week trip, fantastic trip out. Uh, and Dad, for some reason, picked the Gold Coast before we even left England. Uh, so that's where we came, and yeah, then Mum and Dad settled on the Gold Coast, bought a guest house, and the first thing I wanted to do was go bush because of what we'd been through in England. So I was only here a few weeks, and I got a job in Toowoomba. I went in the employment bureau, said I wanted to get a job on a, uh, a farm, and uh, they had one going in Toowoomba, so a couple of days later I'm on a train, went to Toowoomba, and that was it. So I spent a few years up there on the farm. And... Real love of horses up there. Oh, yes, yeah. You, which you still have today, really? Oh, I love horses. I, I, I was lucky I learned to ride in England, actually, because uh, I didn't attend school as often as I should have. And in those days, a lot of the milk carts, the coal lorries and all that, they were pulled by horses. At the end of the day, horses were retained to a paddock. So I actually learned to ride on the big Clydesdales and the Shires. So I was a reasonably good rider when I first came to Australia. So that was a big leg in for me. I was able to ride a horse, yeah. So out in Toowoomba, but you end up back here on the coast. Ended back up on the coast. Uh, loved Toowoomba. Uh, rode in the Toowoomba show over the hurdles, yeah. Yeah, bit uh, of show jumping. Show jumping, yeah, did uh, that. Uh, a lot of mustering, that sort of stuff, of course, on the cattle property. And, uh, yeah, and eventually came down to Gold Coast. Uh, took me four days to come down here because I rode a horse. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. It's, a, it's about a two and a half hour drive now. <laughs> yeah, was four hours, four hours on a horse. So just swa- swag on the back, or were you stopping in guest houses? No, what happened? What? No, I didn't. <laughs> guest house? Got me kidding. We stopped in school grounds anywhere we can come. We didn't even plan the trip. My brother came down with me. He drove a horse in Sulky. Yeah. And in the Sulky, uh, that's where we. Uh, had the clothes and the horse rugs and that sort of stuff. So we just when horses got tired or we got tired at the end of the day, we'd just pull in wherever. And what, I remember one night it was on a tobacco farm uh, and when I look back now, like it was just such a stupid thing to do. But, <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, it was a great experience. Middle of winter, four-day four oh. trek from Toowoomba, I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, so you're on the coast. You get in. What do you get into once you get down here? Oh, once I was on the coast there, I was a truck driver for Paul's Milk Company. I drove for them quite a while. Uh, then I hauled logs. I uh, had a semi-trailer. I didn't have it, but there was a semi-trailer, of course. And I hauled logs there for a sawmill. So what? I had so many different types of jobs, mate, and eventually what? became a motor mechanic. What was more dangerous, hauling logs or, or becoming a magician? Uh, yes, that's a funny question, actually. Hauling logs is very dangerous, very dangerous, because we used to fall timber as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a fairly dangerous occupation, and hauling logs, you've got a load of logs, and you know, in those days, uh, they were all chained on. Today, they've got long poles, they just drop them on. Yeah. In those days, they'll pull up with a, uh, a bulldozer, then you'd get up and chain them all up. And then after you've driven a little while, you'd get off and check them all, tighten the chains again, because logs, they will move, you know. Yeah. So fairly dangerous, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but uh, when you get back to the magic side of it, of course, uh, a lot of the escapes, uh, I look back now, I took 
I took tremendous risks, particularly the Don Lane show. I nearly lost my life on one occasion there. Uh, very, we, very close. We might get to that in a sec. So you're in uh, 1950s, you arrive on the coast, yep. end up a motor mechanic. Yep. Um, but uh, what, what I also want to get into, you've got – most people don't – there's a saying most people don't know crap about boxing, but I would say you're very much an exception to that rule. You, you're an ex- encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to the boxing. Uh, I wouldn't exactly say I'm an ex- encyclopedia, but uh, I just, I've always loved boxing, always loved it. And uh, I started one of the first boxing gyms on the Gold Coast. Yeah. That's going back about 1955, something like that. We had a full-size ring, uh, all the speed balls, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff there. And we used to have a lot of boxing tournaments. Uh, uh, we'd have up to 20, 20 odd bouts a night and the tournaments, very, very popular. We'd have holes around the place. and Here uh, on the coast? Here on the coast, yeah. We'd normally get the whole holes there uh, very minimal cost and we'd erect the ring. We had a portal ring we'd uh, erect and we had the um, boxers who would come down from Kingaroy, Brisbane, all places. They, they were big nights, good nights, yeah. And you, did you box yourself or...? I, I did a lot of sparring, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I twice broke my hand uh, and I thought, well, <laughs> that's enough of that. That's enough. <laughs> Luckily I broke it on... <laughs> I broke it on one bloke's stomach and the other one bloke's jaw. So uh, <laughs> I thought, <laughs> give, that, give that away. Broken hands are no good. <laughs> no. Who, who's your favourite boxer you've ever seen? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt, Manny Pacquiao. Big fan? A big fan. He's uh, eight world, uh, world championships. And uh, I just admire him. His age, he's 42. And uh, he, he's right now, I think it's next month, he's fighting a young bloke, Earl Spence, yeah. who's never been beaten. And he's giving away a lot of in reach and height, like Earl Spence is a lot taller than he is. But he's always done well with uh, bigger boxers. And what I admire about him, he doesn't cherry-pick the damn boxers. He'll fight anybody. And that's, you know, he'll take anyone on. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm a fan of Earl Spence. And Manny Pacquiao, but because of what Manny Pacquiao has done, I'm American for Manny Pacquiao. Very good. What do, what do you think of our current crop of boxers in Australia? Do you think do you think any of them are really going to make it on the world stage? Oh, I, I think uh, oh uh, 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 Tim Zoo. Tim. Oh yes, yes, he's outstanding. Uh, I know he hasn't had a lot of fights, but the fights he's had. Uh, I've been very impressed. His defence is good, and boy, he can punch, especially those body, especially the body punches. That's Jeff Horn, he tell you. He seems to just really just take their soul away from them with oh, those body absolutely. punches. Oh, absolutely. And he'll just keep walking forward. He won't take a backward step like... <laughs> Australia's right behind him, so hopefully, uh, hopefully he makes it on that world stage. Yeah, I, I think he will. Uh I got told last night that you're potential that the boxing led to you being a torchbearer in an Olympic torch relay. Is that right? Yeah, I, uh, that's right. I was in the boxing club, and in those days, uh, that's back in 1956. Yeah. And in those days, you had to be an athlete to carry the torch. Uh, and we did a test around St Lucia University in Brisbane, and you had to run a, a mile, not a kilometre, a mile, carrying a five and a half pound weight. Uh, in your right hand, up in the air, had to run that mile within six minutes. If you couldn't do it within six minutes, you didn't get to carry the torch, yeah. Yeah, I would have struggled. 
I was pretty fit, actually. And I must admit, the day I, or the night I carried the torch, it was at Ormo where I actually did the torch carrying. And that was the greatest adrenaline rush I've ever had. I've had a lot of times you, you get this adrenaline going. But that, just while I was waiting for the torch to light, because you've got the torch, the other bearer comes to you, and while that torch is, you touch them together, of course, and then you, you light. Yeah. And that moment is, oh, the adrenaline, and I could have run 10 miles, you know, it, it, it just builds you up so much, yeah. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Have, what are your thoughts? Back then, did you ever think that Brisbane or our region would be hosting an Olympic Games one no, day? No, no, never. What no. do you think of that announcement last week? <laughs> well, yeah, it, provided this COVID goes away, oh, <laughs> then we've geez. got a few years left. But yeah, no, talk I'm about going bush. Thing. If if we've still got COVID in ten years, I'll be going bush. <laughs> the only thing I won't be going the torch again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could see. I'll, I'll, I'll nominate you. Put me in a wheelchair. Very young at heart. So uh, mid fifties, Gold Coast. It's a different place to what it is now. Oh, what, absolutely. What do you miss about the old Gold Coast? Probably the simplicity of it. Uh, like there was no theme parks, there was nothing here at all then, you know. And we had a group of mates, you'd make your own fun. And uh, I remember at Miami, we bought a block of land. This is before we got married. I bought a block of land there. Careful, you're going to make people sick when you tell them how much you paid for that block of land. <laughs> Ninety-two pound. Oh dear. Ninety-two pound, and that was a uh, out Miami, and it was a dirt road. Then it's uh, in Sunshine Parade, actually. Yeah. It's uh, one road off the highway, and my wife Belle, because uh, she was living in Brisbane, they used to go down the weekend, and unbeknownst to her, I'd bought the block as a nice surprise. So this particular weekend, they come down, and I went for a drive. I drove up Sunshine Parade and I said, what do you think of this? What do you think of this area? She said, uh, too far out in the bush. <laughs> and that, that's the honest truth. And uh, I, I, I said, oh, I hate to tell you, but I just bought this block of land. <laughs> so for all the people attending open homes or auctions on the Gold Coast on on the weekend, <laughs> just remember uh, Arthur got a block in uh, Sunshine Parade for £92. Yeah. Uh, crazy. But so you... you You've got to watch the Gold Coast evolve from that simple regional, you know, beachside location, yeah. but to the flashing lights, the shows, and you're part of those flashing lights, you know. <laughs> if we get into the next sort of phase of your life, you end up being a, a, a Gold Coast icon. Most people that have visited the Gold Coast, you know, for a big chunk of time there, they, they come to watch you perform at, at uh, Miami. Well, I did. I did nine years. Uh, I think I started in uh, 1976, I think, at uh, the Magic Castle on the Gold Coast. Uh, I saw the castle getting built. I didn't know what was going to happen to it. And I went to see the owner and uh, to see what he was going to do with the castle. And he's, another time, he said that he didn't have any idea what to put in it. There was a cheerlift going up in the castle. And uh, I suggested call it the Magic Castle and give me a trial for a couple of weeks. And if I didn't pull crowds, no hard feelings. And uh, he said, well, I can't think of anything better at this stage, but we'll give it a go. And within a few months, the crowd is incredible. We started in the castle itself. It was just a bare room, uh, just a conqueror room. And he had a bit of a stage he built for me with a curtain in front. And uh, 
in a few months the crowds just we just couldn't fit him in. I was doing four shows a day. And one night he came to me and he said, Look, Arthur, he said, I, I can't believe what's happened. I'm going to build a theatre for you. Design what you want and uh, I'll get it built. So I designed a 500-seat uh, theatre, which he built. And while they were building it, he said, because I was doing seven days a week there, four shows a day. Then they had a Lennon's Broad Beach Hotel, which is now long gone, of course. Yeah. That's where they brought a lot of the big overseas artists in. And I used to be the support act there, so I was doing seven days a week, four shows a day at the castle, and six nights a week at the Broad Beach Hotel. Uh, so it was quite an incredible... Bloody uh, busy. Oh, mate, I, I, I clocked about six and a half thousand shows at the castle itself while I was there over the nine years. Incredible experience. Plus, of course, so many TV appearances as well. Uh, TV started, and once I did my first television show, it just snowballed from there, you know. So so our, peop- uh, our listeners can jump online, and you've got a YouTube channel, don't you, the, with, with some of those old yeah, TV well, appearances yeah, on there? Yeah, uh, just Arthur, Co- Dale Arthur Coughlin, yep. you'll get it, yeah. Yeah, so if you, if you search Arthur Coughlin on YouTube, you'll find some yeah. of those great escapes. Yeah. So. You, you beca- you, a title that you don't like, but uh, you become known as Australia's Houdini. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I don't like it, like Houdini was just fantastic, but I, I don't like to live off somebody else's name and I've never, ever copied anything that Houdini did. And also, we live in a different age now. In Houdini's day, he could get away with all sorts of things, hiding, yep. you know, swap things. Today, you like... Even a, a metal cabinet, it can be X-rayed. They can, they couldn't do that in Houdini's day. So it's a far different kettle of fish. Uh, you could have stuff examined in those days, but then you could swap the whole. You could swap the whole thing. You can't do that today. <laughs> and you mentioned it before. So it's TV appearances, but you mentioned it before. The Don Lane show nearly did you in. I honestly nearly lost my life on the Don Lane show, and it was an incredible situation because I'd been on uh, several other television shows and then I had a call from the Don Lane show, uh, a research last I got to know later on, Ronna McCormick. She rang me and asked me if I would go on the Don Lane show. And to be invited on that show was, that, that was the extreme. It's a big deal. Because, oh yeah, that's the biggest show in Australia. So I said, I need a few weeks to think about it and not about going on the show, but what I had to do. Because you, if you're going on a show like that, also when you've been on other shows, you can't do the same can't thing the again. Same. And you've got to do something better than what you've done before on television, or at least equal it. And with the Don Lane show, I wanted to do something better. So I came up with an idea, an escape from a 44-gallon drum. Now, I'd previously done this at the Shark Pool and Jack Evans at Tweed Heads, which is also now long gone. Yeah. Uh, and I did an escape in the Shark Pool out of a 44-gallon drum there. And that was a strange one too because when I approached Jack about doing it, he said, what happens if you don't get out the drum? And I said, I'm more interested in what happens when I do get out the drum. What's going to happen <laughs> with the sharks? And he said, well, I'll make... He's, I'll make sure the sharks are well fed in the morning and I'll have a team of divers around the edge of the pool. So if anything does happen, they'll be in the... Uh, sort you out. Yeah, sort it out. So I did that and then I'll, I'm just going back a bit here, if, if I may, because from that there was a 
uh, ABC had a program, a big country television show. Yeah. And uh, after I did that escape, the next day I had a call from the producer of that show, a fellow by the name of Bob Plasto, and he said he'd uh, heard on the radio about this thing I'd done, getting out the 44-gallon drum, and he said, I'd like to come up and talk to you about it. So he came up a couple of days later, and uh, he examined the drum, which was genuine. He couldn't find anything wrong with it. And he said, if you would like to repeat this in the Sydney Harbour, we'll spend 10000 Pound on it, which in those days that was a lot of money. Uh, there was nothing in big, it for me, big investment. but that was in the production. Yep. So, cut a long story short, they got a drum and I did it in the Sydney Harbour. They lowered me off a trawler down in there. Now, another thing, sharks bothered me a little bit, but <laughs> I couldn't get out of the water quick enough and I got out the drum. But <laughs> So, that led on then to the Don Lane show. I thought, when I asked for going on that, I thought, well, a 44-gallon drum had caused so much publicity, but I didn't want to use the same method. Yes. So I got another drum, and I used an entirely different method altogether. Uh, and that's uh, then I put the proposition to the Don Lane show, what I had in mind, that they would lock me in this drum. First, the drum would go to a university, so they could examine the drum. Uh, and from there, I wouldn't see the drum again till I actually performed it. And I suggested we do it in the car park at Channel 9 Studios in Melbourne. And the idea was they were to get a big crane. The drummer should be examined. I should be locked in it. And then the drummer should be put into a box. Now, this box, the bottom of the box is like a door, a trap yep. door. And that was held closed with a catch, all right? Now, the catch had uh, a 30-metre length of nylon rope attached to it. And one end was attached to the catch. The other end of the rope was attached to a weight on the ground. They had a massive crane, and the idea was that the crane was to lift the drum, keep going, and once the rope tightened, it would pull the catch, and the drum would pour out of the cabinet, and I had to hang on to two handles inside the cabinet, uh, otherwise I wouldn't be here talking to you near. But uh, on the day we went to do the escape, the engineers had examined it, locksmiths had examined it, and uh, I had a call from Peter Feynman, who directed the uh, Don Lane show. He also produced the... Uh, Crocodile Dundee show too. Yeah. And uh, I got a call. We were staying at the Windsor Hotel. This is about five o'clock in the afternoon. And I got a call from Peter. And he said, look, get in a taxi and come in as quick as you can because we've got a problem. So I went in and George Corrado owned me. He built the Magic Castle and sorted me out. He was with me. So we went in the Channel 9 studios and we went in this room and Peter closed the door, and in the room there was the locksmiths, the fellows from the university, everybody's in that room, and Peter, including the drum. And Peter said, look, we've all examined this drum, and we can't see any way you can get out of it. And the fellow from the university stood up and he said, my idea is <laughs> you've had enough of show business and you've decided to commit suicide tonight. And I was in <laughs> just shocked. I said, hey, I'm just reaching the peak. <laughs> uh, I, I've got no intention of committing suicide. Yeah. And uh, Peter Feynman said to me, well, the only way I can let you do it is if you'll let us lock inside the drum prior to going to where and then let us know that you can actually get out. And I said, no, I'm not prepared to do that. I'm prepared. I came down here to do it once and I'll do it once only. So Peter said, I've got no option but to call it off. And then Don Lane, who was there, Don said, well, if you call it off, what are we going to do for show tonight? Because <laughs> I was the biggest part of the show. Yeah. And the research lady, Peter, uh, I may, uh, Ron McCormick, 
She said, I don't know Arthur's going to get out the drum, but I've seen him work before on another TV show, and I've got that much confidence in him. I, I, I'm actually prepared to sit on top of the drum and go up with him. And uh, that swayed Peter. He said, OK, we'll do it. And uh, he used a few four-letter words he didn't... I can't repeat here because... You can he, if you he, want, but don't. <laughs> he, was so, he was so frustrated, he didn't know what to do because uh, he didn't want me to do it, but he didn't know, he didn't have a show. Yes. So, and to make, make matters worse, when I went on the show, they interviewed me before they locked me the drum, and a fellow from the university said, look, I've advised Chell and I not to let him do it because he said, I can't see any way he's going to get out the drum, and I think he's going to kill himself. So then Kerry Packer rang Peter Fame and said, what are you doing letting this go on? <laughs> but it was too late. <laughs> so that's, that's what I... But the thing is, the way, uh, where I nearly lost my life, the day before, we'd actually taken the drum up to see what it would look like. And we'd, I'll go back to the old language now, 100 feet. Yep. 100 feet, we, uh, not me, 100 feet. Uh, and we thought 100 feet was good. If you take too long on television, people get bored at home, they'll go and have a cup of coffee. Something. Yep. So it's got to be kept fairly short and I thought 100 feet would give me enough time to get out but the night I went out to do it as I'm walking out to the car park we'd tested the drum and no, not, not not the one I was getting out of we just got an old drum to see what would happen with it whether it would toss and all that look spectacular so we decided 100 feet the night I'm doing it as we're walking out the car park one of the Channel 9 crew said whispered in my ear said what I've done he said I've given you an extra 10 feet I've made the rope 110 feet an extra 10, give me a bit more time. Inwardly, I was absolutely furious that he'd done that. Yeah. And I didn't realise until afterwards, but that 10 feet saved my life because I got, I got stuck in the damn drum. And all I could think of is I'd let my family down, I'd let Channel 9 down, Magic Castle, I'd let them down. Uh, and it was quite an incredible experience. And then I got the brakes, so I got out the damn thing. And as soon as I grabbed the handles, it went. Uh, and I, I kid you not, I'd say a second. Uh, I would have come down with the damn thing. And every time I watched the replay of it, I, you know, it's incredible. You, you were filthy at him at the time, but looking back, he oh, saved you. In, in, and the funny thing, if there is a funny thing about it, beforehand I was decided when they lower me down, when they lower the box down and I get out, am I supposed to look happy or in shock? But I was actually in shock. Uh, and when I saw the replay, <laughs> I was... Pure white. I yeah, got a bit out. pale. Oh, mate. Uh, and that wasn't bunged on. I was, I was absolutely, I couldn't believe that I'd escaped. I, I couldn't believe it, yeah. And they still, did, they still, there were still people disputed that, that you'd got out of it and it was legit. Well, it seemed impossible. And what happened, unfortunately, the drum was still intact when it left the wooden cabinet. Mm -hmm. But when it hit the car park, it broke open. Yeah. And on the TV, you couldn't actually see this. It appeared as though it I'd damaged it inside the cabinet, which I hadn't. Uh, and I was very disappointed with that. And Darren Hinch interviewed me the next morning. He had a radio show down there. And he more or less got stuck into me and said, look, what you did last night was obvious you damaged the drum inside the cabinet. I said, Darren, I did not damage the drum. It was intact when it left the cabinet. It broke open when it hit the car park. And if you ring Channel 9, they'll verify because they played it in slow motion afterwards. Yeah. And also the university... And he said, well, I'll try to ring Channel 9, the switchboard's jammed. Because in those days, it, what, not like today, there was one girl on the switchboard. He jammed the switchboard there. I said, well, try the university. He said, their switchboard jam is jammed as well. Everybody's onto the switchboard about this 44-gallon drum. 
But anyway, because it caused so much publicity, Peter Feynman said to me, look, would you be, be prepared to do it again next week under safe conditions? And I said, there's nothing I'd like to do more to prove to the public I did not damage that drum. So they got another drum uh, the following Monday night, and I did it again under safe conditions, and that proved all the doubt was wrong. And Darren Hinch wanted to appear on that show to search me. And I planted one of those old-time tin openers in my pocket <laughs> and, because I really had it in for him. So when he... Made so him look like a goose. Ah, uh, did it what? When he frisked me, he, he fell in my pocket and he didn't he didn't give me any warning. He just put his hand in and pulled it out, you know. He was going to get determined to get me. <laughs> and he stuck with this silly-looking tin opener and I thought, you beauty, I've got my own back. But after that, when I did it, he was good enough. We went to the green room afterwards, which is where they have all the drinks and celebrations, and he apologised for the hard time he'd given me the week before. Yeah, right. And he said, tomorrow morning, Arthur, my program's going to be on you. And, mate, he said, I'm terribly sorry for the, what I said last week, and he gave me a big wrap-up the next next day, yeah. So, for again, those listening, you can look up those videos. They're great videos. Yeah. I've watched them, and uh, they're just... I've seen the barrel or a version of the barrel and I, I don't know how you do it. Um, take us – so quite quite dangerous some of the things you've done. I guess we see magic as like this performance and it's, you know, um, you know, you're – you know, it's an illusion. But what I want to know is it's essentially you've got to be – you've physically got to prepare pretty hard. For Absolutely, yes. Yeah, because I've done things over saw benches, massive saw benches. I've done escapes over those. And the thing is, I've always found with the escapes, no matter how dangerous they are, I don't get nervous, they don't worry me until it all happens the day I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden I think, what the heck am I doing this for? <laughs> but by that time, it's, you're past the point of no return. You can't say, no, I'll chicken out. There's a big circular saw. I've actually still got the saw, just the saw itself. Yeah. Uh, and that was a terrifying experience because uh, to go past a big circular saw with, and in no language, I had two inches to spare between my body and the saw blade. And uh, as I'm going past, I thought, this thing picks up my shirt or something like that, and I roll into the saw. Uh, you know, that's the end of but yeah, so I look back now. So, so what 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 did you do physically to prepare for 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 the escapes? Was it was a well? You... The problem with them is that you can't rehearse the damn thing because they're too they're too dangerous to rehearse. Yeah, and uh, I've always felt if I'm going to get hurt doing an escape, I might as well do it on TV rather than get hurt and not nobody know about no, it. No, it's all right. I might as well do it in and front any of publicity is good publicity. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but that, that's it. But I, I, was, I take all precaution I could. But it's always in your mind is there something I've overlooked. Uh, Helen, my daughter, she did a water torture, the first woman in the world to do it. Well, the only woman. And uh, we took all precautions. Uh, but even to the last minute, as we were dropping Helen in, it's going over in my mind is there something I've overlooked, you know, as much as you go over things before. And a lot of sleepless nights, of course, you know, thinking about things, yeah. So, so there's not a lot of physical prep you can do, but a, a no. very mentally straining, uh, is it, mentally, leading into, yeah, a, yeah, leading into escape? Yeah, yeah. And you've you come up with all of these things. Like what – do you just lie awake at night thinking about things you could escape I out of? Or? Uh, I'm the sort of person I'll wake up uh, with an idea and – so that I don't forget the idea, I'll get up, I'll actually get out of bed and go and get a pen and paper and jot down the idea. 
Uh, yeah, so a lot of them just, it's crazy stuff. But the thing that I'm proud of, I've never copied anybody. Yeah. And all my escapes, every one of them, has been examined by engineers before the escape and afterwards. And I don't know of any escapologist in the world who's done that. Do you think that there was a couple of very high-profile artists in the probably in the 2000s, did they ruin illusions a little bit because there was a lot of cutaway photography and, you know, you don't need to mention him, but I remember you saying there was a guy that wanted to buy one of your illusions, but he actually thought it was too dangerous, to, yes. he didn't want to do it. <laughs> That's right, because uh, I won't mention have that. Those, have those guys ruined, you know, the illusion side of magic? Well, strange or? enough, they, uh, they probably haven't. Or is they, it the they have to me, but I've had a lot of people come to me and say, oh, did you see so-and-so the other night? Wasn't that incredible what he did? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, uh, I couldn't believe it, because they do, as you say, do cutaways. Uh, they, they might be doing, then they'll cut to an audience shot. Yeah. So while they're looking at the audience... Whatever they're doing is gimmicked or whatever they change, you know, and then they go back on it. So the viewer doesn't realise it's been changed. They think it's still a real thing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the viewers, uh, yeah, generally they're fooled with it. From a magician's point of view, it's pathetic. <laughs> yeah. There's, there, there's still some very good, uh, you know, sleight of hand magicians oh, too. Oh, gee, there's, uh, oh, there's some very – I'm not knocking them good magicians yeah, at yeah. all. No. I just, I just meant there was a couple of big high-profile TV ones. That oh, yes, there's, uh, there's a few very, very good magicians, yes. And, and in fact, if I can just interject, while I think of it, one of the greatest magicians is totally blind. Oh, really? He's totally blind, and we met him at a convention that uh, we held on the Gold Coast here. Uh, Richard, uh, oh, Richard, <laughs> because I shouldn't remember, but uh, he's, uh, he's worth Googling. But he's totally blind. And he does card tricks, and I've seen him perform, and I've been totally fooled, as of most magicians in the world, including Penn and Teller. Uh, Richard Turner. Richard Turner. Richard Turner, worth Googling because yeah, okay. he's, he's absolutely unbelievable and one of the nicest persons you could possibly meet. Totally blind, yeah. And you've, your daughter Helen's been on the Penn and Teller a few times? Yes, uh, she's been on there. She's been on there three times and fooled them. Uh, she's actually been on there four times, but I can't tell you the result of the fourth one because we're not allowed to tell you that until it, the Penn and Teller show well, goes not, to not, air, not gone which air. might be October. But uh, she's been on there four times, but the three times she's been on prior to that, she's fooled them and had no idea at all how they were done. And do you come up with those together or are they...? No, I come up with the ideas and Helen's presentation is so so good and I get a great kick out of Passing this on, you know, yeah. and watching Helen do it. And, uh, yeah, and we've got along so well with Penn and Teller because I've been over with Helen, of course, when she's done them the last three years. Didn't go over last uh, uh, last year because of the... Uh, uh, Forest. The, the uh, That's the fourth one. We actually did that on the beach at Service Paradise. Yeah, okay. It's a massive one. It's a massive one. But the other three times I went over with her and we just become part of the family over there. And they appreciate, they appreciate being fooled. Very cool. Do you think the Gold Coast could – it's lacking some of those live performance oh, uh, spaces yeah. like you've got in Vegas? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Uh, like years ago, well, the Magic Castle, of course, was a great place. 
And I mentioned the Bore Beach Hotel. That was fabulous. They bought tough artists from overseas there. Mm. Those places don't exist anymore now. You've got the theme parks, of course. Yeah. But the live shows, yeah, it's uh, sadly, sadly they're gone, yeah. What do you like about the coast now, though? What do I like about What do you like about the coast? Well, I like the locality of the coast. Yeah. I'm lucky we live up Talabodra Valley, uh, so it's a nice quiet spot. We've got acreage there, and yet we're so handy an hour or so to Brisbane. Uh, yeah, and I just love the... Uh, it's peaceful. I, I wouldn't like to live right in, right in the middle of the Gold Coast. Yeah. It's too, it's too busy. busy for me. Yeah. I'm an impatient sort of person. I get stuck in traffic jams, I get annoyed. You're, you're probably probably one of the most active people I've ever met. <laughs> you're all, you're always doing something. Yeah, and I, I've just got to keep it up, mate. <laughs> and I, I, I look at, you know, some of the stories that you tell and some of the things that you've done and achieved. What advice have you got for young people growing up on the Gold Coast if they, you know, they want to enjoy their life and they want to, want to get out there and be successful? What do they got to do? What do they... Okay, I think you've got to try something. And uh, I, I still perform. I do uh, educational school uh, school shows yeah. uh, for the education department every Wednesday night. And the theme of the show is to have a go and accept failures. Try, and if you fail, it doesn't matter. It's, it's important to fail sometimes because if you fail, you learn from your failures. So it's important to try something and if you fail, it doesn't matter because you've learned from it. Yeah. Unless it's an escape. You don't really want oh, to Oh, well, <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's it. And also, <laughs> uh, another thing, I define logic. A lot of the stuff, uh, people say, no, you can't do that because it's not logical. Yeah. Now, things are, they, a lot of stuff I do isn't logical. But I defy logic. Uh, and this is the th- message I get to people. Have a go. Uh, and anybody starting out in the coast, try something, you know. Is, is, is the stuff that you've done actually more engineering than, than illusion? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of it is. I'm lucky because being the next motor mechanic. As in, you're very, obviously, you build it all yourself. Yeah, like you do it everything. all yourself. I've always built everything myself. I've got a good workshop. Uh, and a lot of things, uh, I'm talking about failures, I build a lot of stuff that hasn't worked, but... Then I'll go to bed and think about it, and then I say, oh, I'll get it, and I'll change this and change it, and I'll eventually get it working. Well, do you know it did work? The first time I met you, um, I looked, I had a, had a sneaky peek into your garage, and there was a guillotine in there. <laughs> so I knew that I had to take care of your granddaughter, otherwise I was in serious trouble. Yeah, well, a guillotine, I started off where at the castle with a guillotine, and I'll go back to the old language now because that was the It was seven foot tall. Uh, I then built one that was ten foot tall. That's, well, well higher than this room. And it was massive. The blade was uh, four foot six wide. And when the blade dropped, the thing was so heavy, it would actually bounce a couple of inches off the ground. Oh, jeez. And when I built it, uh, people who saw me build it, they said, look, you'll never get anybody put their head in that. And I... Probably did that. I did six and a half thousand shows at the castle. I would have done that guillotine probably about four thousand times, and never had a failure. Everybody, would, people would get on stage, and it's the way, it's the way you handle people. Uh, and I virtually wouldn't touch the thing myself. I would normally try and get a, a, a gentleman and his wife to come up, or a couple, a young couple, and I'd get her to operate it, and I'd con the bloke into putting his head in. <laughs> And once his head went in, 
I had a top part that went over his head so he couldn't get his head out. So it, it was a whole comedy thing. But I don't reckon a, you'd get away with that now. Well, yeah, yeah, I would. I yeah. Would. Yeah, I still would. Uh, because it's the way you handle people and I think you gain people's competence. Yeah. Although you're acting a goat and fun, you gain their competence. And I never had one person that refused to put aid in it. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. And I actually tested it myself. And I'll tell you what, next time I'll put your head in. I'm not, you not, you will not get my head in that thing. When I tested it, to, to, uh, knowing knowing that it's a safe thing, yeah. but I must admit when you kneel down on the cushion and put your head over there and somebody pulls the thing and down comes a blade, <laughs> even b- having built the thing, there's a... <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. I haven't seen one. At, I haven't seen one used for a long time on television or on the internet or anywhere. I don't reckon you get away with it anymore. Uh, hey, you've been a terrific guest, but I've got three questions before you go. Yep. Favorite place in the world for a beer? Uh, right here. Oh, <laughs> well, you're going to have one. You, you better crack that. Well, it's a dry yeah. argument. Uh, favorite athlete of all time. Favourite athlete of all time, without a doubt, would be Manny Pacquiao, the boxer. Yeah. yeah. Big fan. Uh, and as is customary, you can have any four people over for a beer and a barbecue. Who's coming and what are you cooking? What am I cooking? Yeah. Whoever's going to come and do the cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be just straight out sausages. If four people, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd invite Manny Pacquiao. Uh, I would invite Siegfried and Roy. That's the two great American illusionists. And I would invite uh, Richard Turner, the blind magician. Yes. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Um, what, what have I got to – I don't know whether whether you're going to be a fan of the beers and being a snapback or – but I, I do have some – a lot of – you know, keep an eye out while you're watching the boxing yep. at the Olympics. A lot of the Aussie boxers are using these Grip Star socks. Oh, okay. They're grippy socks uh, that got – Grip on the bottom of them, it stops your feet sliding around in your shoe or in your runner or in your trainer. Okay. Uh, yeah, a lot of sports stars. So I've got a set of those for you. And oh, I, that's fantastic. If I take up boxing again, I'll... You, you'll win. be good to oh, go. Gee, how good is that? They are seriously grippy though, so be <laughs> careful. Uh, and I've got a carton of uh, Powers Gold for you as well. Oh, gee, doesn't get any better than this, mate. <laughs> All right. Where can everyone find you? Have you got a website? Yeah, I have, yeah. Just... Arthur, Google Arthur Coggan and everything's yep. on there. So website or YouTube, check those out. Uh, to all our listeners, you know where to find us. Please follow us at Beers and Banter on all the different platforms. Leave a comment, uh, like, share. You know what to do. Thanks for listening and uh, thanks for coming in, Arthur. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Cheers. All good.